You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hi, everyone. I'm in the big boy pulpit. I know it is because there's a step. They knew I was coming, so they put the, uh, the lifts, pulpit lifts. Well, uh, welcome, everyone. If um, you came without a Bible, you're going to need a Bible. So um, the ushers are going to be passing them out. So I think just raise your hand. And uh, I had to borrow one, too, because I forgot my Bible. It's a great, great uh, introduction for the guest speaker. He came to the church without a Bible. Don't tell Damien. Or tell him, he'll go, yeah, figures. That's why we, that's why we give them out, Rich. Um, so while they're passing them out, if you'll open your Bible to Matthew chapter 17. And uh, we're going to look at an interesting passage in the Scripture. I think when you're a guest speaker, uh, there's a temptation to go back through the teachings that you've done and find a home run. You know, look through your notes and... And pull out one, you know, like I hit this one out of the park, but I don't have any of those. So and I, I'm not really very organized. So I don't do a good job of keeping track of what's in the past. One of the easiest Bible verses for me to apply is when Paul said, forget the things that are behind. I'm like, well, I can't remember what happened last week. So that part I apply, you know, very easily. And uh, I think there's a real benefit, you guys know this, going to a church that's teaching the Bible, going through the Word. You're, you know that your pastor's, you know, he's, he's going verse by verse. He's going to cover whatever the text says. And that's a huge benefit because what it, what it does for a congregation, what it does for the minister, is it forces you to emphasize whatever God emphasized. You don't really get to emphasize your own thing if you're covering what He said rather than what you'd like to pick and choose. I'm not criticizing, so don't misunderstand. You know, there's lots of different ways people can do it. I, I particularly like just going through the Bible. I think it's wonderful. And what that does for you is it, is it forces you to, to teach what the text is teaching. And that that's, makes for a healthy church. You cover everything. And so I'm going to do something that's probably not good for you to do. I'm choosing a weird passage as a guest speaker. So I'm not saying that you should follow my example. You probably shouldn't. Uh, I'm going to choose a passage that Jesus does something that I think reverently we can say is weird. I mean, you don't really want to use that uh, when you're talking about Jesus to say what he did was weird. But I think you'll agree with me when we read the story that that it's an interesting thing, however you want to say it. It's strange what he does. Uh, The verses that we're going to look at are in Matthew chapter 17, and we'll start in verse 24. And if you're using one of these cool, shiny guest Bibles, it's page 562, if you want to be on the same page as the pastor. If you're rebellious and you had to bring your own Bible, then I can't help you. So uh, Matthew 17, verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. 
Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. When you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for all the things that you have to say to us through your word. And we pray, Lord, as we consider this part of the ministry of Jesus, this event that took place in Capernaum, what you said, what you did, how you did it, we ask you, Lord, to speak to us. We pray, Jesus, that you'd open up our understanding, that we'd be able to uh, know, Lord, uh, what you were doing, why you were doing it, that it would have an impact uh, upon our lives, that we'd be able to walk out of these doors changed and different and equipped, and Lord, with new direction, encouragement. So speak to us through your word, we pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the story that we're looking at, the event begins with a question. And this is not uncommon in the ministry of Jesus. And you'll oftentimes hear people when they're, they're entering into a question and answer session and they're wanting the people to, you know, ask questions. You'll, you'll hear people say, and maybe you've even said it, you know, there's no such thing as a bad question. And that's true sort of in that context. But I would suggest to you that there is such a thing as a bad question because Jesus got asked a lot of bad questions. And the only thing I would think is a bad question is a question that's dishonest. Jesus was asked many dishonest questions. They came to him and they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Did they give a rip about paying? I mean, that was not the deal. They were simply trying to create a scenario where Jesus was in a lose-lose situation. If he says pay taxes, people are going to be mad at him. If he says don't pay taxes, we can run to the Romans. So here's a question for you. We got a question. It's not honest. They're not seeking for information. It's not tax season and they're wondering about the theological implications. They're just trying to trap Jesus. The, the Sadducees came who don't even believe in the resurrection and they asked them a question about the resurrection. So that's obviously dishonest. You don't even believe in it. What, you, what kind of a question is this? Remember, it was an absurd question. A man is married and, and he dies. He doesn't have any kids. According to the Mosaic law, the wife is, you know, given one of the brothers and he would... He would get the woman pregnant, and then that child would be the child of the, of the lost brother. You know, he's gone, so his name doesn't perish. So they've created this weird scenario. She's married to the guy, the guy dies, and takes the brother, he dies, takes the brother, he dies, takes the brother, he dies, like that would really happen. Seven brothers all married to her. Everybody dies. Nobody has any kids. Who's she married to in the resurrection? That's a dumb question. Okay? I just say it frankly. Don't ever ask that, by the way. In a, you know, question and answer time, don't ask that one. That was a, they weren't honest. They didn't want to know. They don't even believe in the afterlife. They're trying to make Jesus look foolish. They're trying to trap him. Now, is this one of those kind of questions? We read the passage, verse 24. They asked Peter the question, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? It's a question. Now, this context and, and what Jesus answers, I think it's an honest question. He's in Capernaum. And at this point in the gospel account, there's been a, a great divide. The rift between Jesus and the Jews has really happened. They've rejected him. The, the ultimate saying that sort of symbolizes all of it, the position of the leaders and really the people ultimately, when they assign to the work of the Holy Spirit, they assign it to the devil. Remember, they, they saw all the things he was doing and people said, he's, ca you know, he's casting out demons. And they said, he's only casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. So Jesus is healing the sick. He's 
cleansing the lepers. People are, are walking who can't walk. People are seeing who can't see. The deaf are hearing. People's lives are being changed. And the guys look at it and they go, that's the devil, of course, because he's always doing stuff like that. Healing people, changing their lives. No, of course. I mean, who would look at something like that and say it's the devil? And yet the heart of the nation had hardened. And, and now back in Capernaum, he's back in headquarters. We're coming to the point where we're, we're at the end of his life. His face is steadfast set towards Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. So now back in Capernaum where he had made his base of operations, the, the adopted hometown of Peter and Andrew, that's where their fishing business was. The scripture says their hometown by birth is Bethsaida, the same place as Philip. But they, they're fishermen in Capernaum right on the water. James and John are from there. Another tax collector that we know about, Matthew, is from there. It's a little tiny village in the, the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is back there. Now the, the tax guys come and they go, hey, Peter, hey, you, you know, does your master pay this tax? Now this tax is in the Bible. It was uh, a tax that is, uh, is given to everybody. And I'll read you the passage. It's Exodus 30. Verses 11 through 16, if you want to try to turn there, I'll beat you, though. I'll be done before you get there. And I can't tell you what page is because I'm not turning. I got it in my iPad. So good luck if you want to race. I hear some pages. Some of you are going for it. Then I'm going fast, though. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves... And you shall make or take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be for a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So there's the statement. It's a flat tax. Now, the Bible said he's not going to be on taxes. Okay, so don't come afterwards and, you know, say, all right, the Bible is flat tax. We need to write our congressman. That's not the message. But in this particular case, it was a flat tax. The rich people pay it. The poor people pay it. Everybody pays it. You turn 20, you start paying this thing. And it's an offering to the Lord. So the guys come. It's the tax collectors, the guys that are getting this tax in Capernaum. They come to Peter and they say, hey, do you guys pay this? Now, um, there's different opinions as to how honest the question is or what they're implying. I don't think they're implying anything. I think they were collecting the tax. That's my opinion is they were collecting the tax they came to Peter and said, hey, we haven't got it from you guys. And I, I sort of take the way they asked the question as being a, you know, a sign of like, we know you're going to pay it, but uh, come on, pay it. You need to pay it. The nice letter you get from the IRS before you get the other ones. So um, Peter says, yeah, yeah, we pay it. And, and verse 25, when he came into the house, Jesus anticipated him. So Jesus knew what was happening he, he doesn't even let Peter ask a question. He anticipates the question. He, he, he knew it, his own omniscience. And he asked Peter a question. He says, what do you think, Simon? Now, you guys that know the Bible, can you imagine asking Peter that? What do you think, Simon? How many times does Peter get in trouble sharing what he thinks? 
Here's an open invitation. You know, it's like the guy's not got in enough trouble already, but to ask him, you know, what do you think? I think we should build three tents and stay here. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? God interrupted that thought. Or the time when he said, no, Lord, you're not going to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That, was, that wasn't so good. Does your, you know, what do you think? What do you, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? He's asking a really interesting question. And he's going to make a logical um, sort of argument. And the lower, what, what happens? When a king is going to collect taxes, does he collect it from his kids? Does he collect it from people outside the family? And Peter knows the answer to that. He says, from strangers, in verse 26. And then Jesus said to him, well, then the sons are free. It's a very interesting issue that's raised here by Jesus. Really, in a sense, these guys are just simply asking about a tax, a biblical tax, something that goes way back to the days of Moses. But Jesus gets at a real issue, an issue that's troubled the church. From the book of Acts, we see the struggle. We have letters in the New Testament related to this very issue Jesus brings up. And the church has struggled till today with what is the relationship between Jesus and the law? You know, does your master pay the temple tax? Well, let me ask you a question. Who is greater, Jesus or the temple? Well, you guys know the answer to that. Jesus is greater. In fact, Jesus himself said that in another place in Matthew earlier. It's Matthew 12, verse 6. He said, I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. We know that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. Everything that you would see in the law is pointing to Jesus Christ. And Jesus, when he asked Peter, he said, listen, they've come to ask you about this tax. Do you pay it? And in fact, I think their question is honest because Jesus will say in the next phrase, so we don't offend them, let's go ahead and pay the tax. So I think it's an honest question. It's a tax. Jesus doesn't want to confuse them. They pay the tax. But here's the issue. What's the relationship with Jesus and the tax? And Jesus doesn't let it go for Peter. He says, listen, who pays the tax? Do the sons pay the tax? And the answer is no. Jesus... If we read the verses, the thing is an offering to the Lord. It's an atonement money. Now, the money is received and then it's used. You can't use it to feed the poor. You have to use it for the maintenance of the tabernacle or later the temple. In Jesus' day, the temple. It's a, it's a tax. It's given to the God. It's given to the Lord. And then it's received by the, the Levites and the money set aside for the maintenance of the ministry. It's for an atonement for you. Now listen, if Jesus is the Lord, then couldn't he have turned it around and said, in fact, we don't pay it, we actually receive it. You can give it to me. It's an offering to the Lord. And and hello, I'm the Lord. (laughs) I'm the Word of God become flesh. I'm here now. I'm the one who's greater than the tabernacle, greater than the temple. Everything that's in the temple or the tabernacle is pointing to me. So so you can give me the money. Well, he didn't say that. They wouldn't have understood it. But you know, you could literally have somebody make a replica of the tabernacle, life-size, you know, full scale, and set it up in your church parking lot. Couldn't you do that? I mean, if you wanted to. Well, you're looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. I came and saw a tabernacle in your parking lot. Do you remember that? You guys that have been around for a while? Had a tabernacle, life-size to the dimensions, set up in Modesto, in Calvary Chapel Modesto, in the parking lot. And You go through it and everything related to that structure, that tabernacle first, later the temple, everything about it is pointing to who? It's pointing to Jesus. 
The whole thing's about him. He's not abolishing it. He's fulfilling it. He, in fact, said not one speck, not the smallest marking in the law will pass away. Heaven and earth will be passed away before one jot or tittle of the law disappears. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Paul would write in Romans and say, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Not abolishing the law, but fulfilling it. So you look at the lampstand in the tabernacle and you say, Jesus. You look at the altar and you say, Jesus. You look, a veil in the temple torn in two from the top to the bottom at the death of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the door. The door is now open into the presence of God. The Shekinah glory at the, on the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, there's everything about it. You could, you could do a detailed study of the tabernacle and later the temple. Everything about it, you'd say, points to Jesus. So here they come and they're asking Peter a simple question about an annual tax, a half a shekel that everybody pays. And Jesus uses that as an, as an opportunity to open up this interesting and, and really troubling, if we're honest, kind of understanding of what's the relationship of Jesus with the law and, and the relationship of Peter with the law and what do the Christians do? You can read in the book of Acts, the church in Antioch had trouble with this. Believers from Jerusalem, they come up to Antioch. All the Gentiles are there that have gotten saved and these guys are zealous for the law. They've, gotten, they've accepted Jesus, but they're zealous for the law. They come to Antioch and they start causing trouble in the church, telling the people, you got to worship on this day. You can't eat these foods. You need to get circumcised. And, and the understatement in the scripture, it says they had no small dissension with Barnabas and Paul. What does no small dissension mean? It means it was a big dissension. <laughs> they had a big fight in the church over all these issues. And Jesus is bringing this stuff up. Paul wrote the book of Galatians dealing with this issue. Um, a big part of the book of Colossians is related to this issue. My wife and I got to take our very first tour to Israel just about a week and a half ago. We got back. And even today, there's an issue there. We met with Palestinian believers, Arab, Israeli believers, and Jewish Israeli believers in the land. And there's confusion about the relationship of the believers with the Lord. You know, there's a liberty and you'll find a, you know, a great diversity in you know, the expression of worship and the law and what its place is. It's a big deal. It's a serious issue that Jesus has raised. Now, just to, before we move along, I don't want to leave you confused uh, about it. I think there's a conclusion there. Paul said, look it, you want to have one day above the other, you're free. And the other person wants to have every day the same, they're free. Don't go judging each other. Don't look at the guy who has to have one day and you look at him and go, something's wrong with you. And don't look at the other guy who says every day is the same and judge him. If it's in your heart, go for it. Worship, just make it about the Lord. It has to be about the Lord. Whatever you do, do it for the Lord. If you eat, eat for the Lord. If you don't eat, don't eat for the Lord. But if I'm eating in an out burger and you go by and look and go, you got a cheeseburger, homie? I'll go, yeah, you bet I got a... And it's a double cheeseburger. You can't eat that. Oh, watch me. I'm going to enjoy it as unto the Lord. You know, the fat belongs to the Lord. There's more of me now that belongs to the Lord than before. It may not be healthy for me. You know, we're not, I'm not going to have that argument with you. But I'm hastening the coming of the Lord. And the fat is the Lord's, man. I'm biblical. So, 
You know, but if you're in Israel, try to get a cheeseburger. Well, you can't. You know, why is that? Well, they've got the interpretation of the interpretation based upon a passage about boiling a kid in his mother's milk, about doing something just cruel. And then, you know, and they've got an interpretation of that, an interpretation of the interpretation, and now they've extrapolated it out into all these things. And listen, let me put it to you like this. If after the service, you know, it's a beautiful sunny day, I'm out in that courtyard, standing with my wife, and I'm noticing her shadow on the ground, and you're watching this, and you see me look at her shadow, and I sort of lay down on the ground next to her shadow, and I start rubbing its hair. And I just look at it, I go, man, this, you're just beautiful. And I start kissing the shadow. That would be weird, okay? That would be wrong on a lot of levels. I mean, why? You, you know, you walk over and go, dude, your wife's right here. Like, you, you know, like that's the shadow. Look up. Here, here's the real thing. You know, maybe you want to, like, kiss her and not the concrete. The shadow's not the real thing. On the other hand, if I'm standing around the corner and I see a couple of people coming up, I don't see them, and I see their shadows on the ground, and I look down and I recognize it's my wife's shadow. I see her hair, I, I see her shape, and I say, I think that's Gina. And all of a sudden I'm thrilled. Why am I thrilled? Because I know the real thing's coming. The shadow might get me in an anticipation and an awareness. Hey, the real thing's right around the corner, but once the real thing has come, I'm not interested in the shadow anymore. Paul said all these things, they're a shadow of Christ. They're just a shadow. They point to him. They can reveal them to us. The substance is Christ. Now we've got this, you know, Colossians, the, he wrote about it. Galatians, the whole book is about it. The early church had a struggle with it in the book of Acts. Here we are 2000 years later. The church still is trying to figure it out in a lot of places. There's a lot of confusion on this issue, different opinions. So here's this passage about the tax. Jesus sort of brings up this, this kind of intense issue and then we have the rest of the story. This is what I, that was the intro, by the way. This, this is really what I wanted to focus on. Verse 27, he said, let's not offend them. These guys in Capernaum, they're not, if we try to explain why we're not going to pay the tax, they're not going to understand. They're just going to see us disrespecting Judaism. We're not disrespecting the temple. We love the temple. We love everything it stands for. In fact, I'm the fulfillment of it. But if I don't pay the tax, they're not going to understand that. They're just going to see me as a a tax revolter or whatever, you know, smacking, you know, Judaism in the face. So let's just pay it. Let's not offend them. But then notice the rest of the story. This is where it gets weird. He says, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. When you've opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Okay, listen, some of you might have tax problems. This is not how you're going to solve them. Okay, don't tell your wife, say, I was at church today, honey. Now I know how we're going to get out of this hole. I, I'm going to go today and buy a boat. And, I, and I'm going to go up to the foothills. I'm, I bought a downrig. I'm going to get the whole thing. And, and I'm going I'm, I'm to catch a fish. And I, according to Pastor Rich, who was visiting, our tax burden is going to be gone. No, okay? That's not going to happen for you. How do you pay your taxes? Well, you get a job. You work. You earn wages. You set aside part of the money that you make to satisfy your burden, your responsibility to the governing authorities. In this case, for Israel, the Jews, they have a Roman responsibility. They also have their responsibility to the church, to, to Judaism, the t this temple tax. But listen, the way you pay this is 
you know, Peter, you need to set aside money from your fishing and pay your tax burdens. But Jesus decides, I mean, we're, we're talking about a, a context in his life. They, the, the nation's in the process of rejecting him. He's now back in Capernaum. These guys ask a question about the tax. Jesus asked Peter a very profound, thought-provoking issue raising, like one of the biggest issues, this questioning, like, hey, what about this relationship? All that's happening. And then he says, take a hook, throw it out there and bring in your fish and then open its mouth and you're going to have money right there. We'll go pay our tax. That's weird, you guys. That's a weird thing. That's not normal. That's never happened to me. I've caught fish before, but they never had any money. I've caught fish that had other, you know, lures. I've been able to get a couple of good lures that way. Sorry if that was yours. You know, you get a get a fish and he's got like another, you know, someone someone tried to catch him and he line broke or whatever. It's interesting about these miracles of Jesus. He does some very out of the box kind of things, things that I would call weird. And I, I say that reverently. I would never use the word weird to describe Jesus, except for he did weird stuff. So it's his own fault. And I mean that reverently. I love him. And he's God and he's the king of kings and Lord of lords. And I know I'll stand in his presence but Peter went and threw out a hook and pot a fish and opened it up and there was the money. You know, it's an interesting story. Uh, in your Bible, if you would, if you'll turn over to John chapter 2, I want you to see another story. John chapter 2, there's a wedding. They run out of wine at the wedding. How many of you ever been at a wedding? You ever been at a wedding where there was stress? I'm a pastor, so I'm part of weddings. I've seen people with their neck veins bulging out five minutes before the ceremony is going to start. They're totally freaking out about something that's gone wrong. Someone's done something they shouldn't have done. Someone's not here. Someone's some, you know, crazy conflict is happening. And you think, suck your neck veins back in. We're about to stand in the presence of God and join this couple together. I mean, you know, you have crazy stuff happening. This is a wedding where it's crazy. They've run out of refreshments, hospitality. Uh, the, the requirement to show hospitality is paramount in the culture. And now you're not showing hospitality. There's no wine. Mary comes to Jesus and, and says, listen, you know, do something. And he says, look, my hour's not yet come. Verse 5, if you look at John chapter 2, verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. And then there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. Fill the water pots with water. Now, we, we know how the story goes, and it's important for you when you're reading these stories, if you're familiar with them, to not put that familiarity upon the guys in the story because they've never read John chapter 2 before. They're in John chapter 2. It hasn't happened yet. They're actually in John chapter 1 and a half. It's unfolding. And when Jesus says, fill the water pots with water, you've been standing there. You know the wine has run out. And Mary says, do whatever he says. And you turn to him, what do you want us to do? There's no wine. Go get some water. Uh, I have a question. Excuse me. Did you? It's wine. Wine. Not water. <laughs> Did, our need is not for water. Our need is for wine. Six stone water pots containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. That's not, between 100 and... 20 and 180 gallons of water? Are they going to go get the hose and turn on the spigot and... How are they going to get the water? How much does anybody ever carry a five-gallon bucket of water? 
How many five gallons of five gallon buckets are we talking about? How much time is we're running out of time. Our wedding's about to blow up in our face. And you want us to fill these up with water. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus commanding them to do something that doesn't make any sense. Now, you know the story. So you're like, hey, wait a minute. He's going to turn the water into wine. Yeah, but no one's ever done that before or since. I mean, this is a miracle. It's unique. And Jesus is telling them to do something. And it's weird. We need wine, not water. Yeah, just, just, um, these guys are awesome, though. They're some of my favorite people in the Bible. Look at um, verse 7. They filled them up to the brim. They filled them up to the brim. They did exactly what Jesus said. We don't understand what you're doing. This is kind of a weird thing. We're out of wine. You want water? Fine. Okay. Here's water to the brim. <laughs> 180 gallons. Do with it whatever you want. Our wedding is about to be over. Well, we know the story. We know that he's going to turn it into to wine. But at the moment, it's only water. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we have the famous story. And again, you know how this turns out. You have an advantage. It's a lot harder when you don't know what's about to happen and Jesus tells you to do something weird. Like what's happening to you right now in your own life. But in the Bible, it's a little easier uh, Matthew, or I'm sorry, John chapter 6, we'll start in uh, verse 5. Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread that these may eat? And notice verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. That doesn't sound like a very nice thing to do to somebody. I know what I'm going to do, and I'm going to test you. Frankly, to be perfectly honest, I've never liked any of my teachers for this. If you guys are teachers here, you know, on behalf of the whole audience, we'd like to ask you to repent. (laughs) Testing really is not nice to do to the rest of us. And we know you want to measure your success and understand what we're learning. We don't like tests, especially when you sneak them up on us like a pop quiz. Like, okay, during the semester, periodically, I'm just going to test you. No, because I don't want I'm not going to study what you're teaching me and until you tell me when the test day is then i'm gonna study that day okay so if you do this thing where you sneak up on me with a test and i don't know that's not cool because i'm not gonna work you know so don't test me listen jesus is gonna test philip you could look at it and go that's not really nice you know what's gonna happen you know what you're about to do this guy doesn't even know i mean are you wanting to get a good story for the bible you know, as if you could say Jesus was saying, Philip, I'm going to test you. <laughs> wait, till, wait till everyone reads about this for eternity in my word. You're going to flunk. I mean, is that what this is about? I don't, I don't think so. And, um, you teachers can still repent, you know. But what's happening here? When it says he's going to test him, he knew what he was going to do. What does that mean? It means Jesus is about to reveal himself in a way that's going to blow these guys' minds. And he wants to make Philip aware of it. So he asks him a question. Philip, I'm about to do... And he doesn't say it like this, but in a sense, he says, I'm about to do something amazing. And I want you to be thinking about it. So that when it starts to happen, your mind's going to be blown more than everybody else's. Because I asked you this question. Philip, where do you think we could get bread for all these guys? Philip's thinking about the bread aisle at uh, Food for Less. Save Mart, you know, the Wonder Bread store. And he's thinking, man, how, how much is it going to cost? Where would we get all that bread? 
It's 5,000 men plus the women and children. And he's thinking how much bread costs and loaves. And he, and he, you know, that would take like 200 days wages. Like, we don't have any money. You don't have the money to do that. Like, even if we did, it would be this much. Now, he's not saying that to make him fail the test. He's, he's bringing him in. Like, I want you to be thinking about this because I'm about to do something that you can't even calculate. That in your mind, trying to rattle off some kind of a scenario where we could get bread and what it would cost. I want you to see what I'm going to do. So I want you to be thinking about it because I'm about to do it. So I want you to see how this miracle unfolds. It's very interesting. I've always wondered about this next part. Uh, Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So how does Andrew get this kid's lunch? Did he come over there and go, hey, kid, give me your lunch? (laughs) Did the kid come over and go, hi, I'm a sweet little awesome Christian kid, and I'm just here with Jesus, you know, to hear what he says, and here's my lunch. I mean, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say how he did it, but I'm really interested to find out how. You walk over and go, hey, kid, look over there. (laughs) Kid's got, you know, two little fish couple of pieces of bread, you know, loaves of bread, little pieces of bread. Andrew says, hey, we, we got some food, you know. Came over and said, hey, kid, you're going to be able to finish all that? Now, I want you to think about this. Can you imagine seeing Pastor Damien after the service out there stealing a kid's lunch? Hey, kid, I'm the pastor. Damien, you met me? Uh, can I have one of your Twinkies? Uh, and a whole, whole, what do you got in there? Peanut butter and jelly? Can I have half? I mean, you would never, you would never see that. You'd never. So, I, I mean, it's just an interesting story. They end up with this kid's lunch. So Philip can't figure out a way that they would ever be able to do this. And Andrew says, look at I got some food off a little guy. <laughs> How I got it, I'm not saying it's going to be in the Bible. So I got it, though. I got five loaves and two fish. And then Jesus said, that's great. Bring it to me. He took a little kid's lunch. His next statement is, hey, go make the people sit down. That'll be perfect. We could do that. A lunchable. That'll be fine. We can do that. We'll feed everybody with it. I want you to turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Interesting. They're at the south side of the temple. The temple steps there outside the guy's begging. Verse 2. His disciples asked him a question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What a terrible thing to say, by the way. Not, not them, but the, the concept, unbelieving humanity, how they deal with the trouble that's in the world. That there would be somebody that would look at a married couple that has a child that's born with a birth defect and would look at him and go, what did you guys do? It's got to be your fault. What did you do? You must have done something. That there would be rabbis or religious teachers that would be looking to assign blame in the light of human tragedy and difficulty. It's got to be the kid. It's got to be the kid. Imagine someone with that, uh, you know, teaching coming to the boy at eight years old. So what happened? You know, when, what did you do? What do you mean, what did I do? You're born blind. You must have done something. What were you doing in the womb? Chilling? I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I was, I was in the womb. I don't remember. 
There were, there were rabbis that actually taught that you could sin while you were in the womb. And that was what they, that was their justification for birth defects. I mean, it's just sad. It's sad how people respond to the tragedy that they experience in this life. There's a lot of stuff we don't understand. But Jesus, it's interesting, his answer. He said it wasn't this man or his parents. Don't assign blame for the trauma that you're seeing in humanity. Don't look at the parents and say it was your fault. Or look at the kid and say it was your fault. Because in this case, it wasn't. It wasn't anybody's fault. Sin. Sin's in the world. And so bad things are happening. He said, the works of God are going to be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now look at verse 6. When he said these things, he spit on the ground. He made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And then he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. I would suggest to you this is weird. Uh, Growing up, when I I didn't grow up in the church, so when I read through the Bible the first time, all these stories, I didn't know how they were going to turn out. And I remember reading the story for the first time because I know about spit and mud. I grew up playing baseball. There's something about dirt and your spit that you can you can spit if you play ball. You're you know infielder. You spit on the ground and it rolls in the clay. And it, stay, it can stay like spit, but it's covered in dirt. It's very weird and interesting. I mean, I'm going to be gross right now, but Jesus started it, so forgive me. He's the one who spit. I didn't spit. I would have just healed the guy. Look, healed. You know? Or maybe I would have had like a, you know, I don't know. You, what, how, how do you heal somebody? Why does Jesus choose to use this method? When I was in junior high, I grew up in Buena Park, about 15 miles from, from Huntington Beach, and when I was a kid, whether I don't know if it was safe or not, but our parents would always let us go everywhere we wanted. And there would, there, we would ride the, the bus number 39 down Beach Boulevard for 25 cents. We could go to the beach. So in the summer months when school was out, you'd have a bus full of 12 and 13 year old kids, 20, 30 of them in the bus going to the beach every day. 25 cents there, 25 cents back. We'd have no money. We'd turn in Coke bottles or whatever, however we could get some money. Go down there with no money for food for lunch, maybe enough to get like a thing of chips. We'd bring our boogie boards, our towels, and the clothes we were wearing, and we'd, you know, boogie board all day. And one of the things we did at the beach was spit in the sand and throw it at each other. When I read this verse, that was the first thing I thought of. We called them mocos. Now, those of you that uh, hablan espanol, uh, you know that a moco is a booger. So... But these weren't boogers, but they were, we called them mocos. You'd sp- you spit in the sand and your spit will roll up in the sand. And so you can actually pick up your spit and you can throw it quite a distance. I could probably hit most of you uh, from the pulpit, not the back, but at least probably halfway. I could, you know, they'll fly pretty far, especially if you get your spit right. So we call them mocos. And so what would happen is you'd spit in the ground and then you start throwing them at your friends. Someone throws a moco at you. It's a fight. You know, you get hit, pound, moco right in the face. You you attack your friend, you roll around the sand, you run to the water, you're best friends again. If you're a 12-year-old, 13-year-old boy, you also make mochas and throw them at strangers. You know, it's crowded Huntington Beach by the pier, people everywhere. Lava moco to the other section over there. They don't even know they're sitting there enjoying the sermon. Pow, moco. Jesus spit and made a moco and stuck it in this guy's face. I'm reading it. First time I ever read this. I don't know the guy's going to get healed. 
I was like, what? He spit on the ground and stuck it in this guy's face. Who does that? I've never done that, you guys. And I throw mochas at people, but I never walked up and go, hey, I got something for you. And I wouldn't do it to a blind guy. I've always wondered, and then Jesus says, go wash it out. Thanks. Yeah, I was going to leave it in, you know, but uh, yeah, you're right. I think I'll go wash it out. Why did he do that? Couldn't he have just said, you can see. Or he could have just went over there and just touched the guy. Or he could have went over there and just put his hand on his eyes. Instead, he spits in the ground, makes a moco and sticks it in his eyes. And the guy goes down to the pool of Siloam and washes it out, which, by the way, is quite a, quite a it's, you know, if you got, you know, spit in your eyes, and you down to the pool of Siloam from the south side of the Temple Mount. It's not an easy walk. Walks all the way down there, watch, and he washes it out, and all of a sudden he can see. Now listen, there's a lot of other miracles we could look at. There's a time when they brought the deaf guy to him, and they said, lay hands on him. And Jesus pulled him in away from the multitude and took his fingers and stuck them in the guy's ears and then spit and touched the guy's tongue. Don't do that to me after the service. My hearing's fine. They even had him met. They said, just lay hands on him. Lay hands on him. Oh, no, bring him in. I got something else I'm going to do. <laughs> have you ever stuck your finger in somebody's ear? I have. We call it a wet willy. <laughs> Unsuspecting. See, Jesus was junior high ministry material. <laughs> We're talking about Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. He dies on the cross for our sins. In the context of our story, he, he, he puts his finger on one of the, the, the most troubling issues for the church. Who is Jesus related to Israel and the law and all that? And he asked Peter this, you know, hey, who pays the taxes, the, the strangers or the kids? Hey, we're kids. We don't pay. But, so we don't offend them. And then he suggests this. Go catch a fish. Open its mouth. The money's right there. Why, why does Jesus do these things? What is he accomplishing by doing things this way? I think several things. Number one, he makes it impossible for us to put God in a box. He makes it impossible for us to put God in a box. When he does things like this, you can't just come and say, well, God never does that. Well, no, he might spit in the ground and make spit mud and stick it in a guy's face. He could do that. He might. He might take his fingers and stick them in the guy's ear and then spit and stick it in the guy's mouth. I would never do it, but he might because he did. He might, if you need wine, he might tell you to load up with water. He himself knows what he's going to do. He might say things to prove you, knowing what he's about to do. You see, what happens if it's impossible to put God in a box? This leads us to live in a continual state of anticipation. Or we might say confusion or desperate need. Depends upon your attitude. We're no longer going to be in control predictability is a way for us to maintain control. My experience with Christians is they like predictability. Human beings do, I should say. And coming to Jesus Christ doesn't take away that human desire to maintain some sense of I'm in control. The problem is Jesus is in control. And if I could use the word reverently, I would say he's crazy. He's crazy about you and he doesn't want you to be in control. And so since he loves you so much, he's going to create scenarios that you're not going to understand what's happening. 
And if you learn to accept that he's in control and he'll do whatever he wants to do, and, and you learn to enjoy that, there's great joy and excitement at what he's going to do next. Listen, if you're living in the world, if you're a partier and you're here, someone brought you to church and you're like, I get high almost every day. I can tell you what your life's going to be like. I can predict it for you. If you live for the weekend and all you do is want to get drunk, I can tell you what your marriage is going to turn into. If you're all about money and you're materialistic, I can tell, I can tell you exactly what your wife will say to you if you keep going down that road. Why? Because idolatry is very predictable. If you come to me and say, I started following Jesus. I've been following Jesus for six months. Tell me what's coming next. I'll say, I don't know. He may spit on you. I mean, he may put his fingers in yours. You're going to get healed. But you may be getting a bunch of water when you need wine. You may be, you, who knows what he's going to do? I don't know what he's going to do next. I know it'll be good. I know that God will get all the glory. I know that he's amazing. I know that I trust him. But it's, it's not predictable. I'm saying this personally. Our oldest daughter just graduated school with her master's degree and bought herself a one-way ticket. She got an internship, an unpaid internship upon graduating with her master's. Normally those happen like before graduation, right? You do those unpaid things before and then you start getting paid when you're done. But she has on her heart to help the women and children in crisis in the world. The Lord opened a door for her in Geneva at the UN working with UNICEF, applying best practices for troubled places in the world, crisis, Syria, Congo. It's places where there's these huge crisis where women and children are suffering. She's there till the end of the summer. She has just enough money to, to live through the end of the summer and bought a one-way ticket. That's kind of neat when it's your 25-year-old daughter by herself in Geneva. I'm living with it. I know the Lord's going to spit on the ground. <laughs> He's going to do something. I'm glad that my daughter understands. I don't know what the, I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but I know He's going to do something. She's taken a step of faith. The Lord's going to, she's not going to be homeless in Geneva, right? Please tell me, yes. Like, look at me, like, <laughs> tell me, I need the encouragement, right? The Lord's going to do something, isn't he, right? Yeah. He is. Do we know what it is? No. Is it going to be weird? Probably. <laughs> Who buys a one way ticket? No one. You I mean you shouldn't? It's not really smart. You see, what Jesus accomplishes by doing things this way is you can't predict what he's going to do. So what happens to us is there's the need for surrender. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? You say, oh, I accepted Christ five years ago. Yeah, but I didn't ask you that. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Remember, Peter made a great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then a few verses down, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. And Peter said, uh, excuse me, no, you're not going to the cross. Well, wait a minute, he made a great confession. Yeah, he did. But when it came to surrender, he wasn't quite so surrendered. And that was, that's troubling for him. Are you surrendered? Listen, Jesus does these things. You're never going to be able to put him in a box. That means you're not going to ever be able to have that sense of control that your flesh craves. So God's calling us to live a life of surrender, absolute surrender. And that leads us to this place of total joyfulness because we don't know what the Lord's going to do next. He may do anything and God will get all the glory. And then that means we're all qualified to be used. If God can take a little boy's lunch and feed the 5,000, then God could use me. If he can spit in the ground and take mud and heal a guy's eye, then he can use me. If he can stick his fingers in a guy's ear and spit on his tongue and the guy's going to be delivered, then he can use the likes of me. 
All of us can be used. And then our life gets pretty exciting. I want to encourage you to fight off that which happens to people who are Christians over a period of time. You guys that are new, you probably are sort of living through this. Everything's so new. But when you've been a Christian for a little while, you can get comfortable. I want to encourage you to open up your ears. Open up your eyes. Ask the Lord to give you fresh vision. I think that um, my experience with people in the church over the years is that they like things to be predictable. They don't like change. I promise you if they painted the inside of this room, there would be people here that would be freaking out. They'd come in and go, I loved that gray (laughs) color our church used to be. I don't know if I'll be able to worship today because I'm so used to the USS Yorktown. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just picking. I don't know who picked it. I could be getting in big trouble. Sorry, Damien. I don't know if you love the gray. I always wanted to be in the Navy. You know, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'm just picking on something that I can figure out. I'm not offending anybody. If it bothered you, you would have left a long time ago. Um. But listen, I tell, I tell you, if you painted it, you have people walk in and go, well, they made a change. Well, what if Jesus spit in the ground and stuck it in your eye? What if he, I mean, you know, Jesus, Jesus wants us to just walk with God. So you can't look at anything he's done and say, this is, this is exactly what he does. Well, you can say it generally. He's faithful. He's true. He's kind. He's honest. He's always good. But how that, how that practically has worked out, who knows? It's awesome. Surrender your life to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to invite you. You might say, wait a minute, if I come forward, does that mean he's going to spit on me? Do you need to be healed? Do you need to be healed? He'll heal you. Do you need your heart changed? Let's change your heart. He, he's powerful. He won't do it like he did for me, but he'll do it. He won't do it like he, how you did it for somebody else, but he'll do it. It'll be a different method, a different means, but he'll change your life. Do you know him? Do you know who he is? Are you following him? Are you surrendered? Let's pray. Father, we ask for that help to follow. I pray, Lord, for all those that are listening, that you would encourage them in what's coming next. I pray, Lord, that this would be a group always that doesn't put you in a box. Lord, you've done marvelous work through this congregation over the years sent people out, done so many amazing things. And we want to ask again, Lord, for that work of the Spirit to to accomplish, Lord, that new work that you want to do. And so thank you, Lord, that we're not going to put you in a box. So we don't. We just surrender. We surrender afresh and anew right now. So even as we sing, Lord, our hearts surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you guys. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Rich Chafin. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Rich's teaching ministry by visiting cclc.org.